From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Merit Systems Protection Board will extend its mandatory telework effort to July 3rd. A message on the MSPB website says the agency will look at the possibility of another extension closer to that date. It's the sixth extension since the board instituted mandatory telework March 16th. The Agriculture Department's Chief Data Officer is the new chairman of the Chief Data Officers Council. Federal Chief Information Officer Suzette Kent says Ted Kalk's leadership on cross-agency data collaboration makes him a good fit for the job. FedScoop reports the council will support agency CDOs on the federal data strategy and the 2020 data action plan. The General Services Administration will try another fix on the Defense Enterprise Office Solutions cloud contract. Contractor Prospecta alleged GSA and the Defense Department gave competitor General Dynamics Information Technology sensitive information about the contract before the award. NextGov reports the Government Accountability Office dismissed Prospecta's protest Monday because of the corrective action GSA promised. Howard Skip Elliott, the new acting inspector general of the Transportation Department, plans to keep his post as administrator of the Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration in the Transportation Department. That's prompting some concern about IG independence. The Government Accountability Office has new recommendations for the IG role and how IGs can keep their independence. Susan Sautel is Managing Associate General Counsel at GAO. Susan, thanks very much for coming on the program. Uh, you, your big boss, Gene Dodaro, is writing to Congress about some possible fixes for the, in, the IG independence issue. What's behind this? What's prompting the interest in Congress about this issue? Well, uh, Francis, as you know, um, and you're just discussing, um, there are a number of challenges really facing the federal government right now. Um, a number of vacancies have occurred and, um, and transfers. And so committees, a number of committees reached out to us and members reached out to us uh, to understand better what GAO's independence principles are. We set the standards uh, for auditing standards and independence for inspector general and for all government auditors. And so they wanted to better understand what those principles are so that we could advise them on possible legislation, possible reform. There are three main categories of the recommendations that GAO makes in uh, this letter from General Dodaro to Congress. Reform options for legal protections related to OIG structure, reform options for evaluating threats to IG independence and applying safeguards, reform options for addressing the independence challenges relating to acting IGs and IG vacancies. What are some of the broad takeaways here? Is there such a thing in a case like this, Susan, as low-hanging fruit, something that would be easy for Congress to implement? Well, let me just um, start by clarifying that um, these are options that we uh, have presented to Congress based on our principles. Uh, they are not recommendations per se, and we're not uh, favoring one option over another. Um, in terms of low-hanging fruit, I'm not sure that we would quite characterize it that way, but we did lay out options, as you say, in three areas. Uh, the first one is to, uh, to preserve the independence of the structure of the Office of Inspectors General. Uh, as you know, 
each agency has an, an IG office within the, the, the agency, which it is auditing. Um, we, there are certain protections already in place. Uh, one, that, one way that we're suggesting that Congress could improve that has to do with the removal of the IG, of uh, the Inspector General. Currently, the president, uh, as with all political appointees, and IGs are political appointees, although they are uniquely protected, unlike other executive branch political appointees. But the president, under the Inspector General Act, can still remove the Inspector General, although he has to report to Congress what the reasons for that are. One of the options we're suggesting, and that it's reflected in some of the legislation, is to change that to a so-called for-cause removal provision. Um, for-cause is, is a general term that means um, misconduct, negligence, uh, malfeasance of some kind, uh, rather than for um, possibly uh, you know, other, other reasons. So that's one key option. Another in, in terms of protecting the structural integrity of OIGs is to uh, provide a greater advance notice to Congress, uh, not only of when uh, IGs are, are removed or transferred, which is what the law currently requires, but perhaps other changes in status, uh, such as um, it putting an IG on administrative leave. Uh, we're also suggesting that the statute could be amended to require greater detail in the reasons uh, that that the IG is removed. Um, a, a second area, um, if, if, uh, if I can go on, that we recommended reforms in possibly is uh, the process that IGs must follow uh, in the normal course of their work. IGs are auditors again, and under GAO's independence principles and government auditing standards, they are required to uh, assess threats to their independence every day, and not only threats to their actual independence, but the appearance of independence. And I would emphasize that, that it's critical not only to be independent in fact or in mind, but independent in appearance. And so uh, we're suggesting that Congress could create additional requirements on uh, how uh, IGs document their uh, how they've identified threats to their independence, how they've mitigated those, what safeguards they've put in place, um, and report uh, and report um, any challenges to that. Refusals, for example, if if they recuse themselves, how 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 is the work getting done by the rest of that office? Susan, we just and have a minute. Finally, we just have a minute or so left, Susan, and I want to ask you quickly. One of the areas that Congress has been concerned about for a long time not just in this administration, is the situation with acting inspectors general. What are some of the options that yes. Congress has to remedy that, ma'am? Thanks, yes. So for acting IGs, uh, so-called, but the issue really on the table is dual-hatted IGs, IGs that serve both as in their current uh, position, in, a, in perhaps even in the office, um, and as the acting IG. So we have suggested that there be um, Two reforms. Uh, one, if it's going to be a dual-hatted IG, to require that person to give assurance in writing to the agency and to Congress uh, that he is going to maintain the, the confidences and the confidentiality of whistleblower information and identities, for example, 
And the other reform we suggest is uh, that the Vacancies Act be amended to specify who can be an acting IG, and that would be someone, the first assistant or someone in the Inspector General's office already. Susan, there's so much more here, and I wish we had time to cover it, but we don't. Thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Up next, the end of the fiscal year and the future for IT spending in government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's impacting the IT budget in your office for the rest of the year? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Fourth quarter of the fiscal year is just around the corner, and year-end IT spending this year might look different than the last several years. To look at all the factors impacting cyber spending, Brigadier General Greg Tuhill, U.S. Air Force retired, president of Appgate Federal Group, and former Federal Chief Information Security Officer. Greg, welcome back. It's good to have you back. What lessons are you learning from the way agencies have responded to the pandemic and the way they've tried to secure their expanded networks as a result of it that could apply in Q4 this year? You know, frankly, as we're uh, looking at the spending for the upcoming end of year uh, for the federal government, a lot of folks as they pivoted in uh, the COVID-19 work from home environment have uh, accepted a lot of risks. Uh, they've, uh, for example, DOD and moving to the CVR capability uh, that was provided through a Microsoft contract. They say they want to stay with an IL-5 security model for the future. However, they had to accept an IL-2 lesser security model just to maintain continuity of operations. I think that's fair and prudent, but as they're looking forward, as well as other government agencies, taking a look at how much risk we want to accept in the future needs to inform what we are doing with our spending in this end of fiscal year. A lot of other agencies went out and surged their VPN environments only to find that the VPNs don't meet all of their security needs as they try to pivot into the cloud and other areas as well. Is there an exponential connection necessarily to the level of security and how much it costs? Or, or is that not necessarily directly connected, Greg? Well, you know, frankly, you would think that the more security that you want to provide, the costs are going to go up. Mm -hmm. However, there's technologies out there now that have it basically cut the cost of security in many regards, but it requires you to rethink your architecture. So thinking uh, that VPNs are the state of the art in secure remote access, for example, is a faulty assumption because VPNs have been around for well over 20 years. It's kind of like saying Xerox is the only way you can photocopy something. So looking at new technologies and new ways and architectures to solve problems, I think is going to really help governments as well as the private sector solve the security issues that they need to uh, in in the future as well as today. So it strikes me though what you're talking about, Greg, is strategic and, and is very important. You know very well, Q4 spending is not necessarily strategic. It's very heavily, emphasis, uh, the emphasis is very heavily on tactical. What's your sense of how uh, an organization's leadership might try to change that given the challenges that you've outlined, given the remote work environment that we're in, and given the dynamic nature of the uh, of the cyber and threat landscape? 
Well, having served as a CIO in a very large government uh, agency, uh, I know that I've got to look downrange. And now's the time for the CIOs, the CISOs, and uh, leaders all up and down the chain to really be strategic in their direction for end-of-year spending. Because, frankly, as we take a look at the stressors on budget, uh, that's going to inform future spending. Uh, this quarter may be one of the most decisive quarters for IT and cybersecurity spending for years to come. The national debt has grown substantially over the last 12 years, from about $9 trillion now to over $26 trillion. And the pressures to reduce spending and to try to bring, uh, to flatten that deficit curve is going to be tremendously powerful for whatever administration comes in in the future. So now's the time for CIOs to look at how am I going to be able to invest strategically for the future as well as for the immediate. What are steps one, two, and three that you recommend to do that, Greg? Well, first of all, uh, you need to reduce the amount of tools that you have. Uh, the federal government's bought just about every single tool that's out there, and they're not necessarily using all of them equally well. So trying to reduce the amount of tools and the O&M and CapEx costs that you have is really important, particularly if you're using elderly tools that aren't delivering results that are effective, efficient, and secure. Um, I would look at uh, the retirement of old technology as the top target. Uh, I think email, uh, running organic email, uh, that time has already come and gone. So I think um, further outsourcing of email is gonna be critically important. But you also have to invest in the technology to better secure that email that is off-prem and into the cloud. I would also accelerate cloud uh, because that's the reality and it's going to deliver results that are more effective and efficient and secure if done well. And then let's uh, expand the work from home environment. Technology has been a huge force multiplier during this stay at home environment. Uh, you can reduce your overhead just for leasing office space. So there's some subsidiary benefits by investing here that may have greater payoff in other cost categories. And make sure that you've got good comply to connect universally across your enterprise. Uh, and you can do that through new technologies such as software defined perimeters, all sorts of different things that are out there that are gonna lower your cost. So we need to think strategically and not just in this quarter. Greg Tuhill, thanks as always, great insight. Thank you, Francis. Up next, protecting communities from mass shootings. Straight ahead on Government Matters, using social science to prevent violence before it happens. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Hundreds of schools and communities have a behavior-based prevention plan in place now to prevent mass shootings. Secret Service teams work to train law enforcement officers and others to prevent violence using social science and behavior analysis. Lena Alathari is chief of the National Threat Assessment Center at the Secret Service. She's a finalist for a Service to America medal in the Safety, Security and International Affairs category. Lena, thanks for coming on the program. Congratulations. Tell me about the mission of the National Threat Assessment Center to start. 
Sure, good morning, and thank you for having me. Um, it really is an honor and a privilege um, to be a finalist uh, for the Service of America Medals, uh, representing the men and women of the United States Secret Service. So to answer your question, uh, the Secret Service National Threat Assessment Center has a congressionally authorized mission to conduct research, training, and information sharing on the prevention of all types of targeted violence, including attacks against government officials, which obviously is our number one mission, is to prevent as an agency. Uh, but we've also expanded that model uh, to provide uh, prevention strategies to prevent all types of violence in the community. What are the similarities and differences between uh, a, a target in a community that doesn't involve a prominent official and the work that the Secret Service does on an ongoing basis to protect people like the president and other government officials? Every time a case comes to our attention as an agency, we take it very seriously. Not even the threatening cases that you would automatically think about in terms of someone making a threat against the president. But also we have concerns about unusual interests or inappropriate interests. People who might have a fixation, obsession with the president or their families, people who travel to our sites, attempt to get in. So any type of those concerns, we want to identify those individuals assess why they're engaging in the behavior that causes concern, and then come up with mitigation strategies to prevent an unwanted or harmful outcome. That same model that we use, we apply to teach schools, law enforcement, government agencies, workplaces on how to identify individuals of concern who might be exhibiting concerning behavior but also might be in distress. And looking at the themes that we find in our research what are the warning signs, what are the situational factors, so that they can identify intervention and mitigation strategies. It sounds like the benefit here is that you're teaching these organizations, these law enforcement organizations and others, how to do this work themselves, not trying to take it all on on the part of the Secret Service. Am I hearing you right? Absolutely. We want to make sure that we are increasing the bandwidth of the community to be able to identify, set up programs in their communities so that they can mitigate that risk of violence. It's a shared responsibility. Everyone has a role in that, whether it's a teacher, a superintendent, a mental health provider, a counselor, parents. If you're talking about school violence, parents need to recognize the warning signs and know where to go to for help. And essentially, that's what the Secret Service model is, is identifying these behaviors in your community and then knowing what resources you have to support that person and deviate them um, from engaging in, a, in violence as a way to solve their problems. And you stood this effort up, Lena. Resources was one of the challenges you dealt with. Resources, according to the bio from the partnership, for research, for training, for consultation. How'd you get around that? What did you have to move and where did you have to move it to get what you needed in order to be able to provide these resources, these services for these local organizations? Sure, I have to give all the thanks um, for the support that the Secret Service executive leadership has provided for the center. They passionately believe in this mission. They wanna make sure that we are doing everything we can as an agency to support our state local partners across the United States. So one of the things that we did is be able to uh, hire additional staffing, make use of contracting, um, finding additional ways, and now we're actually moving into virtual technology to make sure that we're providing the training even during these pandemic times that the communities need. Uh, unfortunately, after every tragedy, 
we get um, an increase in the request for our trainings uh, and consultations. Just in a two-year period, we've had 162% increase in um, members of the community, such as police departments and schools, calling us about a specific threat case or a concerning case. And what we do is guide them through what to look for and how to intervene, but also from states and districts who want to set up that same Secret Service methodology of prevention in their school or in their community. And so we, again, help them think about and help review their protocols for how to set up such a model. I would not be able to do this level without the support that we've gotten from our executive leadership. We have less than a minute uh, left, Lena. What jumped out at me about your personal credentials is that your background is in cognitive neuropsychology and not in law enforcement. What's the science behind the work that you and your team are doing at the Secret Service? Sure. So our team actually is composed predominantly of researchers. So the National Threat Assessment Center um, has the researchers with various backgrounds, including le legal, social psychology, and so on. And the type of science that we use is a behavior-based uh, social science model, looking at qualitative and quantitatively, uh, doing descriptive studies, using the scientific academic methodology to study attacks so that we can identify intervention points. And the reason this is such a unique center is because we are housed within a law enforcement agency. So every research project that we do is immediately translated operationally, disseminated to our own agents and uniform division officers so they know the warning signs and the intervention points, and then spread throughout our federal, state, and local partners and our private sector, including uh, corporations and the faith-based community. Lena, congratulations to you and your team on your selection as a finalist uh, for a Sammy, and I appreciate you coming on talking about your work today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.